Canuck Central Tuesday. It's Dan Richo and Satyar Shah with you for the next two hours here on Sportsnet 650. Another big day for mm-hmm. the Canucks. Surviving through preseason. Well, <laughs> surviving. <laughs> kind of, yes. They're alive. Let's just put it that way. Uh, no, nothing to worry about here. Nothing, nothing, nothing to worry about just yet. Nobody's hurt. Uh, we are live in the uh, Kintec studio. Canuck Central is brought to you by Grip Auto and Tire. Quality service you can trust in 14 locations to serve you, your destination for all things Canucks. You can follow us on podcast. That way you never miss an edition of Canuck Central or a post-game show as all of the post-game shows this year will be posted to the Canuck Central feed as they always are. Subscribe, leave a review. That way you never miss an edition of Canucks Central. So, yeah, and that way uh, you can always listen back and um, hear the predictions come true, like the one Dan Riccio made yesterday about who's moving up to play on the Pedersen and Pearson line. And, well, the guy the Miller said, and Pearson line. Sorry. Miller and Pearson. Miller and Pearson line, yes. Uh, Connor Garland. Shocking. There he was today. Um, it was funny. Like uh, afterwards, everybody's like, "Oh yeah, they played a bunch together last mm-hmm. year." Remember that? Yeah, <laughs> it was right at the end of the season um, when they started to play together and ended up playing 160 minutes together and did pretty well, scoring eight goals, giving up just four. Mm-hmm. You know, you like a lot of what you saw there. It's a little bit different without Besser in the way that they play and the way they have success, but uh, it still does work, as pretty much everything did with. Miller and Pearson last year, but more alarm bells rung today. I feel like most of Canucks Twitter is just in absolute meltdown right now, Seth. Uh, injuries. They have piled up yet again. Ilya McKay of the latest on the infirmary. And you know what? what week else we, to week with an LBI. Yes. Um, and, you know, we joked about this yesterday, too. We said, you know, obviously the better one, precautionary. Next yep. thing you know, it's, you know, three to four weeks. He undergoes hand surgery. And as much as it seemed like it's only day-to-day on Mikheyev, we, we both said, like, let's see what they say on Tuesday about Mikheyev because I don't believe anything until it becomes official, so to speak. And uh, now we find out it's week-to-week with Mikheyev. Curtis Lazar was playing with uh, Bo Horvat today and Vasily Podkolzin. So that's who's moving up the lineup to fill in Mikheyev's spot. Nils Hoaglander played next to Andre Kuzmenko and Elias Pettersson. We'll dissect some of that also that's not that's not it sad we didn't just mm. get an update on those those are just the forwards yes uh on defense yes travis dermott left practice early uh was feeling a bit woozy after a hit so they said hey go take the rest of the day off we don't need somebody getting <laughs> more hurt so hopefully travis dermott ends up okay who uh has has been the joke on the show is is the forgotten man sometimes yes and on the Canucks D. and uh, the joke I saw I thought uh, one of our listeners chef swagger had made a pretty good joke uh, yeah. on on Twitter to us um the Canucks said Dermot just precautionary PR tomorrow <laughs> Dermot out 3 to 4 weeks <laughs> let's so, hope not hopefully uh, not because with the way Danny DeKaiser's played so far I think Travis Dermot is in line for a top 4 spot to start the season or um, him or Rathbone you think Rathbone would play with Myers well, who says Myers will be your second pair of D-man? The $6 million contract he's on? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, you're right. I mean, th- that's most likely what's going to happen. But I am intrigued enough. I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued by a few whoa, things whoa, here. Whoa, yeah. whoa, 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 whoa. Are you trying to say Rathbone Shen would be deployed as a second pair unit? 
I'm just saying that's not out of the question, I don't think. Okay, that's fascinating. Like, I, I don't think it's been determined who the second pair is that they're leaning on, is my understanding. So, I, I get there's reason to trust Luke Shen because mm-hmm. he performed well in those types of minutes alongside Quinn Hughes. Different kind of a task to ask with uh, a youngster like Jack Rathbone, who has climbed up prospect rankings, mm-hmm. but is and never came with the same pedigree that Quinn Hughes did earlier in his career. So what I think the way it might get built out, because if you have, if you actually end up keeping Hughes and OEL together, and we don't know if that's actually going to be the case yet, it's, the forward group, was very, it was very clear what they wanted to do before the season. Like It was pretty set. You saw the top nine before the injuries. That's, and even Boudreaux said he would love to go into the season with that. That's what they wanted to do. It wasn't as clear on the back end. And one of the things that's not clear, if you do actually go with OEL and Hughes, they're going to be deployed a lot. You know, they're going to play big minutes. They're going to be the real matchup guys anyways. They're going to play all the toughs. All the toughs. They're going to be out there all the time. So if that's going to be the case, it's not even so much about having a second pair that's your shutdown pair. It's more about which other pair can get give us something more and what can the other one do to just kind of get by. And that's why I think Dermot and Pullman is, is interesting too in terms of can they be a second pairing? You know, both move well. Can they maybe out, outperform um, as a pairing potentially? If that's the case, then you feel like, okay, maybe they're the ones you lean on to more. But if Rathmore continues playing well and if he continues showcasing his abilities and if he can really elevate the guy he plays next to, I wouldn't be surprised that they use that line, you know, use that pair a fair amount. And I think the opportunity is definitely there outside of the top pairing if OEO and Hughes t- stay together. I, I do find that um, sort of interesting in, in a lot of different ways. Um, but I, I can't, I, I just don't trust that to be able to work. Like, is it weird that I trust Myers more? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I don't think it's like, weird, but Myers, the question always comes out to who do you play with Myers? Yeah. And it's been Danny DeKaiser so far in preseason. Yeah. yeah, and that could change quickly if DeKaiser gets released from the PTO. But a lot of things remain... DeKaiser played with Pullman today because Myers was out with an illness, not yeah. COVID-related. And then Dermot ends up going out. I'd like to see Dermot and Myers, too, at some point. Yeah. To your point, is that something that's going to be able to be a pair and... That that might be the most realistic avenue to look at being your de facto mm-hmm. second pair. But Boudreaux has also mentioned don't dismiss the possibility of having two righties on the same pair. Which one of our texters listening live, what about a Myers-Pullman pair? I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility. The only thing though is with Myers, it can get adventurous already. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you add another layer that can be a little awkward? Yeah. I just think that that's I think that that doesn't allow you to get the best out of Myers. The Canucks have like beyond OEL Hughes, they have probably six players on the back end that you can concoct a lot of different uh options yeah. in your head that you don't really feel all that confident about uh, any of them. Mm-hmm. Right? Like I, I can understand Rathbone Shen and I could see it working in a third pair role, getting sheltered a little bit. I don't know how much more they can take than that. This is kind of what preseason is going to show us, though. I think they're going to, especially with Rathbone, like what we saw in night one, him playing 25 minutes isn't going to change much 
through the rest of preseason. I mean, it'll change eventually, but I can I could see him getting another 20 minutes on Thursday. I could see him playing almost all of the preseason games, mm-hmm. right? Like they're they're really trying to get a handle on where Jack Rathbone's game is at right now. Well, absolutely. And one of the things that you also have to consider is what how does this team want to play? Mm-hmm. You heard Rutherford mention they want to be a team that's with better structure, moves the puck better, plays faster. And you Boudreau, hear, hear Boudreaux talk about that as well. They want to get quicker in transition. Well, who's your best bet on the back end outside of Hughes and OEL to provide you that type of player from defense? It's probably Jack Rathbone. Yep. You know? Um, Rathbone and Dermott probably profile best for that type of play. Yeah, and even Dermott, as, as good as as much as he can bring, doesn't quite have the same offensive ceiling as a Rathbone has. No, and his decision making is at times uh, a half beat too slow. Yeah, and now it could work in the right pair, right? Mm-hmm. And, and but as in terms of really being able to add push to your team, because. For all the faults a Jack Rathbone may have defensively and all the issues Luke Shen may have foot speed wise defensively at times or whatever, what they could do with the forward group they have now, whenever guys get healthy or how healthy they can be, <laughs> yes. but if they can push the pace more as a team and then you have two pairs that can really push the puck forward consistently and play with a lot of pace, then all of a sudden it gives you as a team a better chance of being successful and playing your style. Then you're going to have flaws. But you have to give up something somewhere. You're not perfect. You can't try to cock the perfect team and play the perfect style. So you have to lean into something. And your best bet to lean into being a, an aggressive forechecking team that can play with pace, to me, is really exploring what Jack Rathbone can do this season and, and how much it can do right off the bat. So it almost feels like a Rathbone breakout is the thing that potentially raises the Canucks floor more than anybody else. Mm-hmm. Like, Rathbone breaking out does a lot of things for this team. It makes a lot of things easier for how they are deployed, how they play, how they are coached. And ultimately, you know, like, sort of like we saw, obviously, Bowen Byram is a different type of Mm -hmm. prospect. And the Colorado Avalanche are a much better team, given that they just won the Stanley Cup. So maybe I'm reaching a little bit with this uh, comp, but do we remember the way Bowen Byram broke out for Colorado in the playoffs last year and what, how that added just another element Mm -hmm. that they honestly, they didn't even really need. No, but Sam Girard went down and they had a need for somebody else to step up on the back end. And Bowen Byram did that. Like, uh, can, you know, Jack Rathbone, uh, uh, could a, a Jack Rathbone breakout season lift the Canucks floor to the point where they're more of a surefire playoff team than a one that's kind of on the bubble. Uh, you know, kind of piggybacking on the discussion we had yesterday after we had Sean Gentile on to go over the athletic team projections yeah. and where they had the Canucks and they were on pace for almost 92 points. They had them at a, at a projection for about 92 points or so. And our discussion afterwards was, how do you outperform that type of projection? Well, what has to happen is a few players take steps. Now, the obvious ones we've talked about, Pedersen, Hughes, they keep getting better. Some guys bounce back. We talked about Besser, for instance. But the other factor you can add in if you want to be optimistic and hopeful or at least point to something and say to, your, to, to uh, the argument you're making, if Jack Rathbone does play not just passable level, but a guy that gives you, say, enough that you feel like... If he's a, if he's a surplus player... If he brings more than replacement level and he's playing 18, 19 minutes a game, that's huge for this team. Yeah. Massive for this team. 
And if he can do that, then you start piecing together a team that's pretty good in the regular season. We'll see what happens in the postseason, but that's probably your best bet. And when's the best time for you to explore that? Obviously, it is training Pre-season, camp. Yeah. But then when you get into the regular season, early in the season is probably where you feel like you can test that out as well. So I would, and I think this team, as long as Rathbone doesn't fall off a cliff, he's going to get a real chance to run with it here. I, I do find that really interesting. I mean, there's there's a lot of other questions uh, that have to be answered on the Canucks defense. Like, what are you going to do with the next three years of Tucker Pullman if he can't even break into this lineup? You know, um, there there is obviously some things that they have to work out, but ultimately, Jack Rathbone does provide the most upside for this team. Yeah. And they got to see what they have there. Uh, like, I, I have no idea what to expect from Tucker Pullman. You know, like none of us do. And, and you know, somebody texted. He and didn't said, play any of the preseason games. The no, other night. Uh, this text here unsigned. Uh, can we not be all in agreement that Pullman at this point is not an NHL caliber defenseman? He's looked like crap this camp. Uh, I mean, yes, he has not looked good yet, has not featured in the preseason yet. But also when you're talking about a guy who is still dealing with his issues up until was it? he said may june it was when mm-hmm. one day he woke up and was like okay now i finally feel a lot better which means he couldn't go full tilt in any sort of training or any sort of work because he's been dealing with this at, at least even if he was training and working he wasn't doing it at the level you required to be at the nhl and then he took a lot of time off he's he's probably going to have a bit of an awkward transition early on yeah he is going to struggle early on and especially conditioning wise even though he, he tested fine still not at the pace he's not like you mentioned yesterday he, he's not just uh, he's not game fit yet he's not match fit yet <laughs> yes. he's got to be match fit and that's going to take some time but yes he, he's he's on a bit of a i think l- longer curve as far as going through training camp and, and going through the preseason so we're not really I don't think we can really judge him until we see him play a few games in the preseason yet. And the first preseason game could look like absolute garbage. Like he could look really bad and people might freak out and say, well, this guy's done. But you kind of have to give him a few games here. But if he does show a slow progression or no progression throughout the course of the preseason, well, then he's the odd man out. Not that he gets sent down, but he'll probably start on the outside looking in in the top six. Yeah, sometimes it's um, it can be hard for players to really go yeah when coming off of a long injury especially one like uh what pullman had with the the uncertainty around it and you know to what i mean by go is just like not just like being able to be match fit but you know really engaging in physical activity and taking the hits and doing all of the things that come with being an nhl defenseman you can't be tentative yeah you can't be you can't be, <laughs> you can't be uh, uncertain about no. what you need to do to get your job done. So I think those are some real questions that we still have to answer. Thursday is the next Canucks preseason game, 6.30 start at Rogers Arena. Of course, we'll have it uh, here with you in the Canucks Central pregame and post as well. So um, on to the forward group. Yes. Ilya Mikhaev week to week with a lower body injury. Yeah. That is going to change a few things for this team. Mm-hmm. Not just uh, how the forward group looks, especially because Besser is already out, as we talked about on yesterday's show. Yes. Um, the PK, which, as Boudreaux mentioned today, will get a closer look at what and who they really want to deploy on yeah. the PK. But it, like the Mikheyev injury, almost has more ramifications than the Besser one because. He's a unique player to this roster. It's not, there's no 
easy replacement for what Ilya Mikheyev brings. Nobody has his speed. Very few players in the NHL have his type of speed. So this this one is a little bit more awkward for the Canucks to navigate. Yeah, he was supposed to fill a lot of the gaps that were missing as far as needs in the forward group. To your point, pace, a good PK forward, a guy that can really stretch the defense. And he is pretty physical. I mean, he, like, he's a physical player. Mikheyev gets in on the forecheck, and he's good at bodying guys as well, and he's really good at winning puck battles. And he's one of those guys they really needed in the bottom. Like You need a guy like that in your bottom six, but you really needed something like that that could push the pace in your top six. And if he could fill some of those gaps for a team that needed more push and play drivers, and he's a play driver, he could be a real, you know, a guy that helps really complete this forward group. Not having him is is a considerable loss, especially to the point you made about the PK. And I wouldn't read too much into what you saw on the PK today, necessarily, yeah. at practice, because of how they were practicing and what they were doing in his training camp. And guys Mills get Oman looks. was uh, part of the PK unit. He, he, listen, guys are down. He's going to get a look. I wouldn't read into that being like, oh, this, this guy has a real yeah. good chance of making this team. Boudreaux said it himself. We were more focused on the power play today. Yes. Tomorrow, we're going to focus more on the PK. So I wouldn't read into too much. Much tomorrow, to your point, better indication of what's going to be happening on the on the PK on the power play. It was interesting, and as we mentioned, and as we saw against Calgary, Kuzmenko was on the first unit. However, going through all of this, how do we feel about the Canucks' depth? Because it's being tested right away. You're losing two top six forwards because these guys are being started in your top six, Mikheyev and Brock Besser. But it's it's a lot easier to cover over because instead of Curtis Lazar having to all of a sudden play your top line. He's playing on your third line. Yeah. Or de facto third line with, with Horvat and Colson, even if those guys played pretty much the same amount of minutes. That's a much better spot than they were in a couple of years ago. So I, I'm not really worried about it necessarily because at least from an offensive generation standpoint... Um, Short-term wise, it's okay. Short term, you'll be you'll be able to paper over. And right? he was Hoaglander. If, if Hoaglander plays to his potential and, get, and has the coach's trust... He doesn't bring everything that KF brings, doesn't have the pace, but he brings some similar qualities play driving-wise. I do want to see uh, Hoaglander up close. I hope he does play in the, the game Thursday at Rogers Arena, but we'll see about that. Um, like, this is the thing about Bo Horvat that I've mentioned in the past. No matter whom he plays with, at 5-on-5, five five, the offense he produces is generally the yeah. same. You look every year of his career... You know, yes, his minutes have increased as his career went on, but even from when he was a rookie to now, his points per 60 is essentially the same every single year at five on five. It doesn't go up too much. It doesn't go down too much. So I'm not so worried about Curtis Lazar having to fill in for a short period of time. I wouldn't mind seeing Phil DiGiuseppe in that role either and keeping the fourth line together with Curtis Lazar, Jason Dickinson, yeah. and and Dakota Joshua. Like I I think they're interchangeable essentially, but we'll see how that works out. Like I, I think it'll be fine. I think more of it comes down to now what does the Pedersen Kuzmenko Hoaglander line look at look like? Mainly because again, there's the wild card of Kuzmenko that I have no idea what to expect. There's going to be some offense, but how's it going to look in the overall? Are they going to get exposed at times because 
Um, there's just not the chemistry there, and there's a little bit of a learning process of how the NHL game differs from the KHL. Yeah, it's going to take some time for him. Like, even you even heard Rutherford and the quotes that came out uh, from Dolly Wall yesterday and, and even what Boudreaux said. It, it's going to take some time for him to see how it goes and how he gets his game, but he's going to be playing to start the season. He'll be in the top six yeah. to start the season. He'll He's going to get a real long leash. And I've mentioned this before, but at the very least, he can do what Goldobin did with mm-hmm. Patterson a few years back. He played 40-some games, and he actually had, what, 20-some points or whatever. Well, he wasn't bad. He was fine. You know, he, that line produced, and he, he was fine to help, you know, the play move forward in the right direction. Kuzmenko can do the same thing. So he's going to get a chance to play through it. The good thing with Hoaglander, especially with a motivated Hoaglander, and as long as, long as Hoaglander hones it in and, and doesn't get out of his own space too much, him and Patterson could be an intriguing duo. You know, and especially with how Hoaglander's they, they were able going. to control play quite a bit. Last they were, year. and if you can get create more, if you can score a bit more with that, and Kuzmenko does come in there as a as a player with a right hand shot, and if you can just find the open space, and Hoaglander and Pedersen can really kind of drive play and, and create a lot, and especially with Hoaglander's ability to win puck battles, mm-hmm. and you can get the puck into some open space. There is a potential there for that line to work, and Kuzmenko easing his way in. You know, so I, I feel I feel fine with that line. And going back to the. Horvat line for a second. I actually think Lazar makes a lot of sense because he's a righty. That yep. line doesn't have a right-hand shot. Yep. And he's really good at retrieving pucks. And he's really good at winning board battles. And he plays hard as well. And that type of role for that line, especially with how Colson also plays, I like that. I think that line has a clear identity. You know, and you know, I, we call it, call it the de facto third line, but it doesn't get deployed like a third line. And to have, you know, those three lines going like that and having that real big, strong line with put Coles and Horvat and Curtis Lazar, I think it makes a lot of sense. Even if that offense doesn't flow really there, mm-hmm. I think they can be a real strong territorial line. Well, I wonder, and uh, I don't want to jinx anything, but assuming, you know, <laughs> this lineup uh, does play night one against the Edmonton Oilers, um, you know, one thing that we talked about was, are you just going to kind of roll through? And see how they perform, you know. But now with the injuries they've sustained, I could see Horvat and that line maybe taking more often the toughs, maybe lining up against McDavid. Yeah. Preferably, I would imagine Boudreaux will want either Miller or Horvat to take the other team's top line well, and, and then yeah. shelter, give give the, the Pedersen line more of the offensive zone opportunities and stuff like that. For sure. And, and you know, that's actually where um, Lazar fits in really well, being a right-handed centerman as well. Mm-hmm. And then you, you have that option as, as your shutdown line, for instance, to have a guy comfortable in either circle at any point. Well, that gives you an advantage because if you're winning, you know, close to 60% of your face-offs because you have that duo against really good lines, well, you're giving yourself a better chance by having the puck yeah. off the face-off, right? And those are the little things you can do as a team. And, and this goes back to as much as there is pessimism and there is concern, and, and I think there should be. And listen, we don't know anything yet. We're just talking projections. But I think one of the, one of the things we spoke about was this can be a versatile forward group. Mm-hmm. they have the option to do different things. And as much as you want to play a certain way, way consistently, every line is going to have a different identity. And if you can't run it out the way you want it to, well, now when you move Lazar up, you have Dickinson as well, and you have different types of players on the team, you are able to all of a sudden create a shutdown line. 
with, with Horvat and Lazar potentially, with Patkolzin. Patkolzin's two-way smarts are very evident. I mean, he's going to be strong. He is a strong defensive player. I think that that could really work in his favor. So all of a sudden, you have the option to go to a line like this. Maybe you don't want to do that. Maybe you'd like to have just like power against power and skill against skill and, and think that your skill guys will win those matchups. And they very well could with Pedersen on his game and they could, you know, Miller's on top of his game and Bester's on that line as well. But if you don't have those guys, this is a, this is a, this is a good way to default to a different style of playing and different ways to have success. And honestly, like for all the talk about Mikheyev guys, I mean, he may be, they said week to week. Yeah, season doesn't start until two weeks from now. He could be ready yeah. to go in two weeks. He could very well be. Uh, Elo and Coquitlam, we need to see Petey and Mikhaev on the PK together. Petey will be a beast if he aces the PK. Uh, so that's Ella coming in on the 650-650 Dunbar Lumber text line. You can always text in with the show if you are listening live, but uh, you can also listen on demand via the podcast as well. That is going to be more of a topic for tomorrow, the PK, because we will get a closer look at how Boudreaux and the coaching staff would like to deploy that penalty kill. And I think that is a fascinating storyline to start the year. Pedersen Mikhaev, we did see it the other night against Calgary here at Rogers arena. And it did bring some interesting early returns. Will we see it more often? I think it's definitely something they've thought about to start this season. Coming up, Frank Saravalli will join us. Our usual Monday hockey insider wasn't able to join us yesterday, so he'll join us today. That's next on Canuck Central. Canuck Central in the Kintec studio. Kintec Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintec.net. Canuck Central is brought to you by Grip Auto and Tire, quality service you can trust, and 14 locations to serve you. Yesterday, I was worried about my slow cooker blow, you know, I was gonna blowing ask up you, the house. Uh, did, did, did your house burn down last no, night? No. Uh, no, everything was good. Okay, good. The house smelt great when I got home. Oh, it did. Yeah, just had to make some rice and uh, quickly had some burrito bowls ready to go. Oh, really? was was it good? It, it? it actually turned out fantastic. So, so what did you put put in it? Uh, I got like a pork shoulder roast oh, and threw it good. in the uh, threw it in the slow cooker with some uh, chipotle and adobo sauce. Okay, and okay. it came out uh, really good. Oh, well done. Uh, I feel like a mini chef now. You know, yeah. Just set it and forget it with the slow cooker. <laughs> That's the way to go. So you doing the same thing today, or do you have leftovers? <laughs> oh, we got lots of leftovers. Okay. Yeah, okay, good. Not cooking for the rest of the week. We hope. Um, you see the Spencer Knight contract? Four and a half million per season, three years. Mm-hmm. He's played like 30 games yeah. in the NHL. It kind of reminds me of the Corey Schneider contract the Canucks gave. It was like four million per, per year, uh, over three years. And it was also a similarly small sample size of excellence. Now, Spencer Knight hasn't done a ton just yet but uh, it is an interesting contract uh, and obviously comes with a big pedigree let's bring in our next guest he is our insider here on Canuck Central it's Frank Saravalli what's happening Frank not too much guys uh, not doing as well as Spencer Knight is today but uh, pretty good nonetheless that's a pretty good contract for uh, for Spencer Knight I mean I, I know the NHL is kind of moving to pay for future performance not past performance anymore but um it still seems like a fairly big bet for the Florida Panthers to take on a 30-game sample size. 
It is. It's really kind of unprecedented. And since you mentioned the Corey Schneider one, um, that was actually Corey Schneider's third contract, not his second. And it's interesting that you look back at some of the previous deals that have been handed out. I think it was Carter Hart last year. He held the record for a few days or hours before Igor Shesterkin took it for highest paid to a goaltender in the salary cap era right out of entry level. And the interesting thing is Spencer Knight still has a year to go, and he's not taken the throne yet, uh, such as it is from Sergei Bobrovsky in Florida. And so what this contract tells me is the Florida Panthers believe that Spencer Knight's going to take a huge step forward this year in terms of playing time. Obviously, the pedigree's there. They've been a big believer in Spencer Knight uh, since the previous regime drafted him, and they want to get ahead of it and make a solid deal now that they mm-hmm. hope can save them a few bucks rather than going through this year. So what does this do to Bobrovsky's situation here? <laughs> Your guess is as good as mine. I do think the Florida Panthers have tried or engaged in conversation with teams to try and move the contract, but with that many years left at $10 million bucks a year, no one's taking it, you know, even if there's one year left on the deal, let alone multiple years. And so um, what it tells me is that their salary cap at this point isn't going to dictate who gets the lion's share of the work. It's going to come down purely to meritocracy because honestly, I think clearly Sergey Bobrovsky had a big bounce back year last year was much better than a lot of people anticipated. Um, and he, part of it is he's able to stay healthy and stay upright. That always helps. Um, but this point moving forward, I, you know, I think you look at the contract last year and the year prior, like that's the real reason why Spencer Knight, I think, wasn't in the driver's seat in terms of being the number one goalie. I think it's, it's going to be wide open this year as we get to puck drop. I think this is, you know, um, it's probably one of the biggest reasons the Canucks are moving forward and haven't taken any step back. Uh, but, you know, having Thatcher Demko at 5 million bucks for the next four years is it's right there with Shesterkin as the best goalie contract in the league. It's definitely up there. And what's interesting is you look at Thatcher Demko and his contract, he has the same agent as Spencer Knight um, in George Bezos and Jordan Newman, that same group. They have a lot of the top young goalies in the league and they had to grind to get to that point. And that also was Thatcher Demko's third contract. He had entry level, then two years at 1.05 before getting this current five-year times five deal. And so it it goes to show you, A, I think how much the Panthers believe in Knight, and B, how unique this contract is in terms of what he's earning a year from now. So what do you read into a lot of the contracts that we saw over the course of the summer, like young players getting... Um, fairly big money. Now, this isn't a long-term contract for Spencer Knight, obviously, but we did see, you know, Stutzla get a lot of money uh, on a short sample size. Uh, Tage Thompson, one year gets, you know, 50 million bucks off of one great season. Um, Why are teams changing their process of signing young players, or are they changing their process of signing young players right now? I think we have seen a shift in that 
And and the funny thing is a lot of these at the moment are pretty expensive deals for what some of these players have produced. But what they're hoping for is that four years from now, especially as the cap rockets up, and we did finally get some insight on that today from mm-hmm. Elliot Friedman, that these contracts are going to look like bargains. And I think it speaks to an overall change in theory um, that's other sports have clearly gone to like look at baseball and some of the major contracts that have been handed out as second deals uh, for some of the up and coming stars of the game. The theory being buy up as many of the year, the best years of a player that you believe is going to be a star Uh, get an eight year deal that takes them from age 21 or 22 to 30, as opposed to getting an eight year deal that starts when they're 27 or 28 or 25, you're just, your chances of that player producing and living up to that deal are so much better. And I think it kind of goes back to the old, um, you know, pay a player for what he will do instead of what he used to do. And I think teams, it feels like at least have learned a little bit of that lesson. Well, and one of the things that I'm really curious about from this point on too, now that there's more clarity, like you mentioned, on what the cap is going to look like the next couple of years. Well, if you're a player that's whose contract is up in a year now or maybe even in two years from now, it's going to be really interesting to see what percentage of the cap in the moment they're negotiating for, knowing that it's going to go exponentially in a couple of years. So could we see a sizable market resetting contract or a few of those contracts over the next year or two? I mean, these, we've seen some big ones now, but nothing really market resetting, right? In terms of like, oh, now a, you know, a second line winger is making seven and a half million, eight million, like, or, you know, top line guys making 12 million, 13 million, much more readily. Are we going to see a huge change here at some point? I think so, Sad. I mean, like, look at how long Connor McDavid held the title of highest AAV in the league. Whereas, look, and part of it is, is of course, pandemic related and the flat cap. Um, Part of it is that so many players, you know, basically re-signed ahead of time and, and et cetera. There's a lot of varying factors, but um, the fact that it feels like when you watch the NFL or specifically the NBA, every summer, it's like this guy has now set the bar that much higher uh, with this contract. You know, this is a record contract for right guards in the NFL or whatever it is. There's always that new bar that's being set in other sports. And in hockey, it's, it's been a while. Um, and, and part of that, like I said, is, is the economics of the sport and, and where the salary cap is at. But part of it, too, is like players have to be willing to change how they think in terms of what they need for security. Like, I truly believe when you look at Austin Matthews and his contract, instead of opting for the eight, he goes with a five-year deal. I, I think he's going to end up making way more in his career. He's going to have that many more kicks at the can to, to re-sign and I, I wouldn't be shocked to see him next time around also go for another five-year deal as this next one is likely to set the new high water mark, you know, north of Nathan McKinnon. He's probably going to be the next guy to break it. I don't see anyone else coming between now and then that maybe he's the trendsetter of this is perhaps the way you should approach it. Bet on yourself a little bit more uh, in a sport where a lot of the players, and rightfully so, you know, someone's handing you that kind of money, you take the security. 
Yeah, I, I, I don't think we'll ever see uh, somebody go like full LeBron where you just sign like one year plus an option all the time to keep your options open and always maximizing your year-to-year salary against the, the salary cap as it continues to go up. But I, I, I do... because they don't make as much off the ice or mm-hmm. off the court. Exactly. LeBron but... is killing it off the court. Like whatever he makes on it is sort of secondary to his earnings. Yeah, but I, I I do wonder like if we do see star players, you know, take three four year contracts like you mentioned. Um, you know, thinking about when when Elias Pettersson was negotiating his contract, his second contract coming out of his entry level, you know, it was pretty clear that it was going to cost maybe double digits for the Canucks to get him on a on a long term deal. I think players uh there's some players just more willing to take that risk than than others i think in the nhl a hundred percent and so it's funny because when you think about contract term limits you could understand why teams would want to move towards a five-year term limit because so many have gotten themselves into trouble with seven and eight year deals but i heard someone argue the other day and i think we actually had this argument on our podcast with jason gregor who's saying it's the nhl pa that should be pushing for five-year term limits because he thinks players will ultimately make that much more in the end if they bet on themselves and make it to market sooner. Well, and I, and I think a lot of that also goes to mindset with, I mean, or I'd say industry mindset, even from the agent side, because for the most part, and we've been talking so much about this, it always comes down to total money for NHL agents because that's ultimately what they're negotiating for. But if you know that there was a lot more money coming in a couple of years, then maybe that mindset has to change a little bit. It's, it's not so much about total money. It's more about total potential earnings long-term. Well, I think that's why you've seen a few deals signed this summer, and it's a small number, mm-hmm. um, but certain players coming off of entry-level deals where you check in after the fact, and that was exactly their intention. Like, look at, um, look at a Sean Dersey in L.A., and in some ways that contract was, uh, has helped set the table for whatever comes next with the Rasmus Sandin saga in Toronto. Two years at $1.7 million, like they purposely signed for a two-year deal knowing that, that was, he was going to become a free agent then in the summer when the cap is expected to go up significantly and, and likely will based on the projections that we learned today. So um, you're going to see more of that, I think, where it's like, hey, let's, get a, let's put 35 or $3.4 bucks in my pocket now and then let's try and go chase a, a much larger payday later. Well, I'm, th- I'm thinking about the uh, Canucks big negotiation now, too, with, with Bo Horvat. And he, he his agent probably sees, oh, the cap's going to be $92 million by 2025. Well, then it's kind of just, you think about percentage of the cap. And if he signs below seven right now, then, you know, in 2024, that might look pretty cheap. Um, th- this exactly. is, it's probably the biggest sticking point now that these numbers are coming out that agents can really use in negotiations. Yeah, I was going to say, the one team that absolutely hates, and I'm sure there's others, <laughs> that hates seeing that right now is a team like Vancouver because everything that they're arguing for it becomes a little bit different or more difficult of a position to, to back, right, or to support. No, for sure. And I mean, I look at the Bo Horvath situation overall and, you know, where the, where he's at, I think I – think, what he has to figure out more than anything is how badly do I want to be a Canuck? And I think that's maybe the situation, the the way the Canucks have approached this, where they have obviously a desire to keep him, but they're trying to really play the card of, hey, do you really want to be here really badly? Do you really want to win here badly? If you do, this is the type of contract you have to take. And ultimately, 
I think that might be what it comes down to for a guy like Bull Horvat here. And it's going to be good money, right? I mean, we're not talking about, you know, he's going to get 30-some million. I know they came in a bit low maybe on the initial offers, but he's going to get a contract at least in the high 40 million total money range or close to 50 or whatever that is. But does it not just come down to ultimately how badly he wants to be here? I think that's ultimately what it comes down to with any player that's entering the final year of their deal as they're going through this process. Like, what would the market look like? How, you know, how would I fare in another city? What's the best option competitively that gives me a chance to win multiple times over the life of that contract? And so that's part of it. And I think the tough part is, you know, when you go through this process, and I'm not saying that he's there yet, but when, you know, you look at the situation that the Calgary Flames entered into last year with Johnny Gaudreau and, and in a different way, Matthew Kachuk as a pending RFA went into the final years of their deals. I think once the genie's out of the bottle with that and you begin to think that way, and, and especially once you start the season or go through a chunk of it, you're like, well, I've come this far. Like, why don't I at least see what it's like and, and test it? And then it sort of becomes intoxicating. And I don't know, you know, I, I can't put a, a, a clear picture yet onto what the mindset of, of Bo Horvat is, but I'd have to think at a certain point as you go through the process that you're like, Hey, this, this is really kind of interesting, isn't it? Yeah. And on the flip side, maybe there, some players are just like, they they'll just call their agent and be like, okay, just get it done. Like I I'm tired of being asked the question every day. But I think that's part of what JT Miller went through. It was like, mm-hmm. again, like I'm going to go back to Vancouver and this is exactly what the story, you know, Sat and Dan are going to ask Frank every <laughs> Monday or Tuesday about my contract and we're going to have this breathless reporting on it. No one wants that. No one wants the headache. No, of course they don't. And I think the, the, the other reality as well for a guy like JT was after the summer, when teams didn't pony up in a big way as well, and when, when teams, you know, you didn't see the interest that kind of was out there, then you may think to yourself as much as, yes, I can make more money on the market. What is that going to look like, really? And, and that fear does set in when you're forced to play one more year as well. And I think when the Canucks came and gave them a good offer, you just couldn't turn that down. Well, and I think that's part of, the flip side of that too, though, is like, but is this really the place I want? Like, like yeah. put yourself in, I don't know, Jonathan Huberto's position. He gets traded to Calgary and, you know, is a total shock to his system and he's entering the final year of his deal. It's a team friendly bargain deal. And you know that you're going to cash in. It doesn't really matter where you go. It's like, if it's 72 or 80 million or 85, whatever the number ends up being, you are going to be a filthy rich person. Do you just say, ah, I don't know if I want to be in this place? And it's different when, you know, Bo Horvat's drafted by the team, developed by the team, has been a heart and soul player for so long um, and has really done a lot for the community. Like you look at all those different things and, and you size that up and you say, well, huh, how does this, how does this ultimately work out and is this the best place? Frank Valley, our guest. Um... Yeah, I was thinking about it this week as as that uh, clip of Jacob Chikrin was was kind of going around as he reported to Ooh. camp. I mean, is this guy ever going to get traded, Frank? Oh, very awkward. <laughs> so awkward. It's, it, it's so it was it was like Twilight Zone listening to it. It was like, well, yeah, I've pretty much told them like this would be mutually beneficial if you could trade me, <laughs> and I, I almost couldn't believe like it was so honest. It also it wasn't. Um, Interestingly enough, like it wasn't antagonistic. Like it no. wasn't 
he wasn't pushing their buttons. It was just very matter of fact, like I've let them know that I want to be elsewhere. And, and the fact that he also said it last year on, on locker clean out day, like, and nothing's happened here. He is same guy in the same spot now going to play in a college rink um, that, you know, nothing has materialized to this point. It's kind of shocking in a way. Um, and so I, I do, is he ever going to get traded? I think he will. Uh, I do think that there's one team in particular that's been pushing hard over the last few weeks in the Ottawa Senators. I don't know how close they've gotten or, or what that's been like, but I don't know if I can definitively say for sure yet that the summer of Pierre Dorian is over, uh, even as we enter autumn, because that's that's sort of the one missing piece for them, I think, on their back end. Um, to really try and solidify that group. I, I've just wondered, like, what what's the holdup here? I mean, it's it's not salary. You know, he's got a very reasonable number at 4-6. Uh, is it the yeah. ask? Uh, like, yeah. Because he didn't play 100%. that well last year? Well, I think what last year did, coming off of an insane season, um, for Jacob Chickering, that when he sort of came back down to earth, what that did was validate a lot of front office thought and opinion. Like there's very mixed reviews on Jacob Chickren, and I don't know why he's so polarizing, but some teams look at him and say, this guy is not a number one. And what is he? Is he a number three? Is he a two? Like where, where does he slot on a authentic Stanley cup contending team? And teams aren't sure. Like there are a few teams out there that, that say, you know, even if they like the player, they think the ask is ridiculous. Four pieces, not unlike a, a haul that the Buffalo Sabres got for Jack Eichel. And, you know, does the ask change? Does someone get desperate enough to pay it? Um, and in the meantime, like, you know, that's for the teams that really like him. No one's been able to step up and pay that price. There's a whole group of other teams, guys, that are like, this guy just isn't for us. Mm-hmm. You know, you know what he kind of reminds me of, Frank, is Jay Bowmeister. Remember when Florida was thinking of trading him back in the day and there was a lot of talk about, you know, how good of a defenseman he is, what his potential is, and this guy's a franchise cornerstone defenseman. And some people said, well, he's really not that good. He's a top four defenseman, but he's not a number one. And, and I kind of see a same similar discussion about Chikrin. He's clearly a top four defenseman, but if teams don't think he's truly the number one, then is anybody going to meet that ask? Because you look around the trades that have happened, the Carlson one, the Eric Carlson one to Ottawa, especially with, with them hitting on the picks and hitting on Josh Norris and everything, that looks like an outlier trade. And that's probably what Arizona is looking for. But the, this, in the NHL, teams are just reluctant to pay these big prices in trades. I agree. And I think that's just, it's further held up the process, I think. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, didn't that Jay Bowmeister saga just go on for a long time, mm-hmm. or am I making that up? Oh, no, it went on for a long time, and then he eventually got traded to Calgary. But he ended up, like, he was on the trade market for a good three years. And and I'm just looking it up now, just to be it was, like, right as I was entering the business. Jay Bowmeister in exchange for Jordan Leopold and a third-round pick. Like, yeah. that's not anywhere near what <laughs> the ask probably started at. no they didn't trade him at his peak and then things kind of went down he needed a new contract and things just got ugly and they got to a point where they traded him for leopold leopold was good but yeah. look at the trade now and it still wasn't what they wanted because they really viewed bowmeister as a franchise cornerstone defenseman so if history is our guide here doesn't that suggest that at some point it would be wise of the coyotes to change their ask mm-hmm. yeah 
Price price is going to come down eventually, especially when you know you're going to be a bad hockey team. So it's uh, it, it is an interesting spot. Uh, before we let you go, um, Nick Hag, Nick Robertson, uh, any, any of these situations coming coming to a close here? Nope, and I, I just, at least not to my knowledge, I, I don't think there's been any new development. I also just recently in the last hour checked in on what's the latest on Mackenzie Weger and the Calgary Flames push to get an extension done for him before the season starts. I don't see uh, anything uh, on the horizon on that front, so nothing new to report. It's going to be expensive for Jason Robertson, I can tell you that. Uh, there seemed to be some suggestion that, uh, given the way the cap is rising and all the things that we just talked about, that um, is it possible that the Robertson ask was eight years at $11 million? Um, I, I don't know. I don't know that to be fact. There seemed to be some scuttlebutt about that, but I could certainly see you making the case. 11 seems kind of high, but I could see with the cap increases coming off a 40-goal, 79-point season, that is 10 reasonable. Yeah, it it does, especially with the way the cap is going. Typical Toronto guy I am. I keep calling Jason Robertson Nick Rob- Nick Robertson. Unbelievable. <laughs> uh, Frank, we always appreciate your time. Thanks for this. Uh, have a good night, guys. Uh, there's uh, Frank Saravalli. Didn't get the Toronto joke, I don't think. No. He's like, he's like, I'm, I'm busy thinking about something else. I got a message. That's in the second time I've done it with Nick Robertson and Look Jason Robertson. Well, I mean, they are related. Yeah, they're they're brothers. <laughs> yes. That one's really good, and one is uh, still trying to figure it out. Remember, uh, people talked about Nick Robertson being maybe the best prospect in hockey for a while. <laughs> there were people like, no, "Why no, no, are we no. talking about him?" Like to talk about Connor McDavid. Look at his production. Which which people? <laughs> I don't know, man. It's all uh, the same. Kind of fascinating with uh, with Jacob Chikrin. Uh, we'll we'll continue to talk about the salary cap. Elliot Friedman reporting that uh, by the twenty twenty five off season, the cap could be up. By as much as ten million to ninety-two million dollars total for the ceiling. We'll talk about that and more as it pertains to the Vancouver Canucks. This is Canucks Central.